Being a Catholic, I believe in order, tenderness, and piety. May the bridges I burn light the way. Okay. Uh, the topic tonight is the hippies, an understanding of whom we must, I guess, acquire or die painfully. Uh, we certainly should make considerable progress in the next hour because we have with us a professional student of the hippies. What, what distinguishes the hippie movement from simply an orthodox, radical, uh, say, uh... Nothing. It was in the sixth decade of the 20th century when the hippie movement plagued our continent living lives devoid of care short of cash and long of men they were dropouts from the great establishment oh the california hippie murders flashing knives and blood and the word pig Hugged upon a young girl's breast A mother pleading for her unborn son While they killed their victims one by one Was the worst crime in the annals of the world Sniffing glue in an apartment in Dallas Was the beginning for Donnie and Chuck and White Eyes But it was only the beginning a man came to their apartment offering them marijuana and LSD. They took it and wanted more. He said they should come with him to San Francisco. For San Francisco, he said, where it's at. Folks were born too late to be hippies. My dad was still an altar boy at St. Maurice when Woodstock happened. He spent the summer of love kneeling and ringing bells for Father Cronin. He probably didn't even know it was happening. Most people didn't. History was rewritten years later by the victors, when they ushered in the Clinton years and completed their capture of the culture. It didn't stop my parents from trying. The hippie movement was dead, bought, and sold by the mid-70s but it still seemed aspirational to a couple of blue-collar Catholic kids from rural Connecticut. They called themselves Easy Rider and Joe Girl. They rode a motorcycle to Newfoundland where I was conceived at a festival. They had a bong that looked like a wizard statue. It's all very embarrassing in hindsight, but it probably felt like an easy way to jump a few rungs up the social ladder. 
My mom's family were the kind of Quebecers people called De Demdos because of how they spoke English. They wore flannel shirts year-round with suspenders and didn't do yard work on Sundays. They couldn't understand American cool, much less achieve it. My parents reverted to the mean over time, the thin layer of warmed-over 60s pop culture ultimately failing to override their nature. I grew up broke and rural just like they did, the counterculture leaving nothing behind but the absence of the things that replaced. Church, community, family. A scar of alienation. By the 90s, Woodstock had grown into a defining American myth, and I watched my dad learn to take pride for having stopped a war that was over by the time he had been draft eligible. I rolled my eyes at them. Sellouts. Fighting the establishment. Boomers were the establishment. I was different. I found grunge, and from there, punk rock. Twenty years later, all my friends were patting themselves on the back for ending the Iraq war by electing the first black president. They'd done no such thing, but you can be anything in your imagination. slums of Chicago. The disease which is slowly eating away at the heart of America lives in the small southern towns, the fishing villages of New England, and in the hot, dusty streets of the Midwest. This is the age of the American cynic, the year of the unbeliever, the day of doubt. We've killed all the sacred cows and destroyed all the images, and there's nothing left to respect. Old-fashioned love of God, country and family, is passé. We stare at our shoelaces when they play the national anthem. We wouldn't want to be seen at a political rally or a town hall meeting. And we don't want to be caught with our eyes closed during public prayers. We've decided the only way to get into public office is to buy it. So I first heard the word hippie when I was probably about five or six. I was driving down the road with my grandfather and we came upon this hitchhiker. Now I had seen a hitchhiker before, but I had never seen one quite like this. Uh, he was a shirtless man with dingy jeans and raggedy sandals and he was filthy from head to toe. But most shocking to me is he had this full head of blonde hair that ran all the way down to the middle part of his back. And I was just stunned. Not only was this man in a state of undress and dirty, but he had that long hair. And to my understanding at the time, only women and girls were allowed to have long hair. And so completely confused, I immediately looked to my grandfather and he looked back to me and it's almost like he could read my mind. And all he said was, bud, that's a hippie. We don't like hippies. And so from that day on, all I knew is that all the long-haired men in the world were hippies and I wasn't to like them. It would take many years till I realized that this whole thing was a social movement that had come and gone long before I was born and that there were political elements to this that I'm sure 
or important to my grandfather as a veteran, but all that was just lost on me. And I often tell this story mostly for a laugh, uh, also to describe the relationship that I had with my grandfather and the kind of man that he was. Uh, but also as, as I find that the world seems to now spin more and more out of control and as I get older and find myself trying to meet my obligations to my family and my community and my faith, that my grandfather does intrude more and more on my thoughts and that I, I immediately begin thinking back to that exchange and many others like it as I kind of try to probe the depths of my memory for guidance and strength. Because my grandfather was a, he was not a, a remarkable person by any worldly standard. Uh, he was a very plain man. Uh, he wasn't especially opinionated about anything. And he also was very mild-mannered. I don't think he had an unkind word to say about anybody or anything, with a rare exceptions. But what defined my grandfather was his relationship to his obligations. And those obligations, the strength and certitude that he exuded in his life, just really seemed to hold our family and our community together. And this, he was not unique in this regard. Most of the men that I grew up around were like this. That while I can't tell you what their taste in music or favorite food was, or if they were attached to some lofty ideal in their lives, I can tell you the way that they made me feel and that they had a kind of strength about them that just seemed to hold everything together. And it was so ever-present when I was younger that I, I don't think I ever even noticed it. And the only reason I, I believe I'm able to put my finger on this now is because all of that just feels so conspicuously absent from the world that we live in today. It seems so rare. And so I often think back to that rare moment of candor when my grandfather actually expressed disgust for another human being. And I, I can't say that he probably had a, any kind of hatred or, or malice towards that other man on the side of the road. But I think he was expressing a sense of distrust that my grandfather, who had ordered his life around his obligations quietly and graciously, that he didn't see a wild man on the side of the road chasing after some noble ideal or worthy cause. And in doing so, he wasn't just letting himself down, but he was letting the world down. Sometimes they call it pot That's what the hippies call a little one-penny matchbox full of marijuana And that's what they gave to my genie Then they introduced her to acid and speed Now acid, that's LSD And speed is just another form of narcotics then they introduced her to the spike and the works. 
Now the spike, that's a hypodermic needle. And the works, that's a syringe and the needle. Next they introduced her to smack and the pushers. Now smack is heroin. And the pushers, well, they're the people. The people that sold these things to my genie. I once loved a teenage girl, genie was her name. She promised she would marry me when graduation came. Then my genie put me off, said she must see the world. She promised she'd come back to me, that she'd still be my girl. But a box of grass they gave to genie. Growing up in rural New Hampshire, I didn't have a lot of exposure to quote-unquote hippies, at least not the kind most people have in mind. I didn't know or at least wasn't aware of any of the back-to-the-land, peace, love, and harmony types, but we did have what we country people consider hippies of different sorts. There was one family in town that I guess you'd consider Hell's Angels hippies. No lineage from the area, questionable associations with the law. They lived in a cabin at the end of the dirt road surrounded by various types of small engines kept raccoons indoors for pets. Each of their three boys got tattoos of the family name on their forearms once they hit the fifth grade. My best friend's dad was a hippie Vietnam vet. When he came back, he grew his hair long and spent his free time on disability making dream catchers and painting cow skulls he found on the farm. I remember he told us never to wear seatbelts, something he learned flying on Hueys and Nam. You wanna leave your options open, he'd say. You never know when you might want to jump out. We rode our dirt bikes way out on the lumber company property. We'd often catch a glimpse of an old Toyota pickup truck parked in the underbrush along the trail. It had Weed Man for a license plate. Not very discreet. Live free or die indeed. Dope growing hippies. My first job off the farm in high school was in the trades. I apprenticed under a guy that was what you consider a towny hippie, I guess. He was from a family whose Scotch-Irish name appeared in a half-dozen towns in the area, true working-class aristocracy. When he was in high school in the early 80s, no doubt at the disappointment of his family, he grew his red hair long, got really into VW buses and all the usual accoutrements, took off for a spell to God knows where. He came back and was learning how to settle down when I met him. Truth be told, he had a huge influence on me. He introduced me to Ed Abbey's The Monkey Ranch Gang, and it was over from there. He would viciously curse people who posted their property, which he considered his birthright to have access to, especially if it contained a choice cheap trail. He knew everyone, and everyone knew him. There goes so-and-so, they'd say. He's a wild one. He also introduced me to Newcastle Brown Ale, strangely enough, which is coincidentally the reason I met my wife. I can't listen to green grass and high tides forever without picturing him riding around town in his Willie's flat fender, cold ones bouncing around the igloo in the back, German short hair in the passenger seat. A wild and free townie. The kind kings and queens bow and play for. 
Maybe hippies aren't all that bad. The apocalyptic Doomer collapse happened, and I'm still paying taxes. That crazy guy in New Mexico was right. The zombie movies didn't prepare me. John Michael Greer didn't prepare me. Prepper consumer therapy just left me with debt I still have to pay. Darn! At least I didn't ask my children to strive for extraordinary lives. In retrospect, such striving may have been admirable, but hey, we grow potatoes. word to describe hippies that was um, when someone was a hippie or lived the hippie lifestyle you would say that they were grano which was short for granola because they were crunchy like everybody everybody had white person dreadlocks and you know wooden beads in their hair like the general look was um, like hobbit core is the best I can describe it like sort of um, like leather sleeveless vests with um, long flowy pants. So the story I want to tell is it takes place at a house, my friend's house, who I'm still close with today. Um, but her house was a, a, a waypoint for like wayward hippies and all kinds of people of that persuasion. And oftentimes, like we would we would gather for like a, a dumpster dived potluck. So you'd get there, and there'd be like, um, dump, you know, bruised and half moldy asparagus and um, expired applesauce, and say uh, maybe a, a half opened package of Boston cream donuts as a treat. So one one of these potlucks, I met this woman that I had a very peculiar interaction with and uh, so we were having some, say, dumpster applesauce and this woman, we'll call her Martha 
she um she was a sort of an energy worker and a trauma counselor you kind of get the idea and um she started getting into i had never met her before um, i met her maybe you know we had spent maybe 20 minutes around each other met me here for the first time and she got into this kick where she was wanting to feed people at this at this dinner with with a spoon like she was playing this game of like i want to spoon feed you all and and then she turns to me with the spoon and uh i sort of i i just casually said i'm good i don't martha i don't need you to put that spoon with the trash applesauce on it in my mouth i'm okay and she uh, she didn't seem quite offended was the word but she seemed intrigued by the fact that i would refuse her wonderful offer to like explore my vulnerability and my mother wound through having her you know feed me like a little baby she sort of started she sort of locked her eyes onto me in this weird way that i i have not ever quite experienced since and um she started to do her her thing on me in in, in sense of like well why would that be like what are the reasons that you're refusing this you know what what are the reasons you're refusing to have me interact with your your mouth like are you afraid and the real there wasn't really any real reason i just didn't want it <laughs> it wasn't appealing and um but then somehow i ended up letting her do it but and i i did hold her off for a good four or five minutes and to the point where everybody else started getting a little bit tense <laughs> they're like you know basically wishing i would just let her shovel this this food into my mouth and just be be done with it or so it felt like to me and um yeah the the sort of psychological tactics she used were very sophisticated like i guess she thought maybe she was helping me work through some stuff like she noticed a roadblock in me and she really had to bust it down for my own sake and so i think the the point of the story is that the only the only thing that you can do wrong in terms of like interacting with hippies is to not go with the flow like because you the rule sort of their their sort of rule of life is that you have to be cool with anything that's happening and the only crime that you can commit is to not be cool with something that's happening um which seems to me like a way to get into some really bad situations and sure enough lots of people i know or knew in that scene ended up doing just that
12 à 15 ans, ça rentre. Ça, c'est vraiment un coin. Un coin qui was grown up it kind of made made it like a uh, a wall you know a make wall uh, and your Margaret's husband's family uh, worked all that land along that area it was an ownership there was no government or that kind of thing uh, they were born there and uh, um, that's how it started out. You want some apple pie? Apple pie? Or do you want ice cream? I'd rather have ice cream. Are you a native of No. What, what, where'd you come from? I originally grew up in Hartford. Hartford? Yeah. That tells me something. What the hell don't you go back? You know something? Boy. When a bear comes and visits you, Boy. you're going to really think it sucks. Go back to Hartford where you belong. Then you ain't you nothing. Funny thing about this clip is that people kept sending it to me over and over again, just because they thought I'd get a kick out of the townie screaming go back to Hartford at some yuppie homesteader guy. And I probably saw it a dozen times before I realized I knew him. The yuppie, not the townie. He was this guy named Morgan Gold. His family moved from West Hartford, not Hartford, to my school district when we were teenagers. There's a big difference in that West Hartford means you're rich. He was Jewish, probably the first Jewish kid I ever met. It didn't mean much to me at the time. He tried to recruit me to play in his experimental noise band. The only thing I remember about practice was that he was gung-ho about doing a mocking version of Amazing Grace. His parents sent him to a Catholic school, so he didn't have to go to public school with kids like me, and he thought it was corny. Our friendship didn't really last, but we reconnected by chance as adults. 
and I watched him from a distance as he grew up to become a Democrat operative. He met a rich girl from a prominent Jewish family, and they had a huge wedding in D.C. Important people went to the reception. I realized that as kids, we'd both been pretending in opposite directions. He'd been slumming it, and I'd been hobnobbing above my station. Shortly after he married, we quietly dropped back out of touch. I didn't hear from him or think about him at all, really, until I found until I found he'd given everything up to buy a few hundred acres up in Vermont and become a homesteading YouTuber. He was famous for posting his land and going to war with old-timer hound hunters. He was still nice enough but seemed to regard the old-timers as little more than a nuisance. Guys like him buy and sell the world, and he was going to do to a small town in Vermont just like his parents did with a small town in Connecticut and with the Catholic school. He paid good money for this. He has rights. Their time is over. Do not fight abstract nouns or complain about them. Such fighting and raging may seem admirable, but you will lose. Help yourself instead to something decently heavy you can touch with your hands. Lift it above your head ten times. Rest for a few minutes. Lift it above your head ten times again. Do this for a while every morning. You'll find heavier things to lift. Your wife will love your swole arms. Forget the abstract nouns. Start reading poetry that isn't just prose with line breaks. Is it the problem with the terms like hippie is that they have a definition foisted on them by the media? And that uh, the word hippie is, uh, has been limited by the necessities of the uh, uh, type of journalists that promote it. And, uh, uh, you know, you, you can't rely on the name hippie to include a human being, you know, the, everything about a hum particular human being. You know, so uh, it's a bad term, I think, because it has no meaning. You might think of hippopotamus, and I mean, you, th you know, it's like... <laughs> was a hippie that couldn't count to seven Threw him in the feather bed, he thought he went to heaven He just laid there, painting like a lizard Made me have goose pimples on my gizzard He had whiskers all over his chin Made him look like a hog in a fattening pen With that long hair on his head and face Makes him look like a hairy Took Bennett at LSD too. Smoked marijuana and he sniffed a little glue. He went floating on a cloud and when he came down, he was walking on the buildings all over downtown. Watched a hippie was a feeling fine. Got him a girlfriend he called Caroline. Then he turned on all of his charm like a dying calf in a thunderstorm. He said, honey, can I be your groom? Her eyes lit up like the harvest moon. He had her shaking in her shoes. Touch me again and I'll blow a few.
1993, I moved to an industrial city north of Prague, about 30 miles from the Czech-German border. I was 22 years old and there to teach English to engineers at a local natural gas distribution company. Usti nad Labem had been around for almost a thousand years, but was now mostly hideous socialist housing blocks and pollution spewing chemical plants. It did have a 14th century church, but I never bothered to go inside. It was just a relic of a time when being stupid and superstitious was the only option. There was a small community of foreigners in town, about ten Americans along with a few Brits and Canadians. They all seemed like freaks to me. The weirdest one was a bear-like gentle giant from Los Angeles named Chad. He was pushing 30 and lived off savings from a job as caretaker of an old Beverly Hills mansion now used for film shoots. The mansion had been the site of a lurid high society murder-suicide in the 20s and was alleged to be haunted. Chad described strange encounters he'd had there alone late at night. The distant sound of piano music, which stopped as soon as he turned towards it. The distinct sensation of someone shoving him from behind. A sudden, sickening sense of dread when he entered certain rooms. Chad told us he had always been particularly sensitive to the supernatural, and in conversation he would casually drop hints of his mystical worldview. A bad breakup was the reverberation of their previous life together in pre-revolutionary France, where he was garroted for trying to save her from prostitution. The lost city of Atlantis was real, a place he had visited repeatedly while lucid dreaming. He shared an intense psychic connection with the spirit of murdered Playboy playmate Dorothy Stratton. It wasn't so much that I thought these beliefs were untrue, it was that they were tacky and low rent. Chad didn't try to dress them up with playful ambiguity or pretentious buzzwords or any of the other tricks I'd picked up in college to avoid saying anything that might expose me. And yet he was somehow still a magnetic storyteller. His matter-of-fact way of stating even his wildest claims was funny, and I enjoyed egging him on. Once, in one of my regular hungover tailspins of anxiety, I asked him if he wasn't afraid of nuclear war. He sighed with slight exasperation and explained that, obviously, the higher beings protecting Earth would never allow it. I laughed, but also felt a strange yearning. If only I could believe that instead of, well, what did I believe? And where did it get me? Even if Chad weren't the conduit to the spirit world he claimed to be, he was uncommonly empathetic and perceptive when it came to other people, which is why we all like to be around him. Whereas my constantly shifting sense of who I was and what it all meant kept me in a state of agitated self-obsession. I had secretly scoffed at Chad's notion that horrific events could leave some kind of bad energy behind. But here we were in a place that had been annexed by Hitler and then bombed by America where less than 50 years before a mob of Czechs attacked their ethnic German neighbors, shooting and stabbing some 100 men, women, and children, and throwing them off the town bridge. Was my solipsistic idea that only the future, my future, mattered any less of a deluded fantasy? Maybe Chad was a kook, but at least he got me to consider that there might be something at stake in this world, that it mattered what we did and even what we thought, that transcendent good and evil were real and could touch us. Chad headed back to the States, and eventually so did I. By 2016, I was married with three kids. We'd moved to my wife's hometown, L.A., which Chad had told me so much about. But he wasn't there anymore, having settled with his wife and son in a small town outside Sacramento. His ordinary, unambitious life wouldn't have been a good fit with ours anyway. We were upwardly mobile and cultured, 
with high expectations for ourselves and our kids. It went without saying that we were good, tolerant people. Religion was an occasional, unobtrusive reminder to be grateful and give back, nothing that might make things awkward with our friends or put us at odds with our community. I was comfortably settled, but still imagined myself on the verge of transformative, clarifying success, until one day I didn't. I wasn't special. My kids would soon grow up and abandon me, and I was going to die. I tried to ease the panic with therapy, running, and Ram Dass videos on YouTube. Then a goth girl I did plays with in high school re-emerged on Facebook as a devout Catholic stay-at-home mom and pro-life activist. After a few pointless arguments with her, I calmed down and started reading everything she posted without comment. It was fascinating to imagine being so gullible and narrow-minded. I watched videos she linked to and read books she mentioned. I embedded myself in this bizarre, backwards culture. A few months later, I was sitting in my car saying the rosary for the first time, just to see what would happen. I entered the church about a year later. Just before the COVID lockdowns, I got a call that Chad had had a massive stroke. We hadn't been in touch for years. I gave money to his recovery fund and got added to a text group of friends and family who unselfconsciously offered their prayers and invoked the healing power of God's mercy. I was surprised at how natural I felt doing the same and how praying actually felt like doing something helpful. I still include Chad in my daily rosary. Maybe it's just guilt that I haven't written or called yet, but I like to think he can pick up on it somehow. If so, I hope he humors me like I humored him 30 years ago. You never know where that might lead. I'm tempted to share some thoughts that don't belong here. That a snowplay session is basically woo, but shadow work is not woo. Though you going over an edge to do woo snowplay with a group is already a sort of shadow work. So good work. If you dislike or are annoyed by something, it's there to show you a splintered part of your wholeness. Perhaps you know this core Jungian concept. I bring this feedback because you're now the leader of a movement, and personal growth or therapy or shadow work is going to be important to everyone, whether they know it or not. Doesn't matter if firefighter fathers and farmers are too tough to care about their sensitive side. Lean into your woo and see where it takes you. Reclaim your splintered self from academia's critical dungeon. I realize that without having established any relationship, this is probably out of place. I say all of this because I respect and appreciate you and value you as a leader of a strange movement that needs you as a role model. It makes me feel sad and disappointed when you casually disregard a new and ancient metaphor or method for exploring one's depths as if it's some superstition. It may turn out that all we need is a little more woo to help us heal from the trauma of industrialized capitalism.
Also, Dias, I don't know if you want to use this story too, but um, it's more, not much of a story, it's more that um, somebody I worked with in a kitchen that made, uh, they advertised as raw living food, like raw food was kind of, thank God, a short-lived trend, but I briefly worked in a restaurant that did raw food, and um, I met some really fucking crazy people there, especially fucked up about food stuff. Sometimes I would get so hungry that I would leave the kitchen if it was relatively slow, or sometimes I didn't even wait. I would leave the kitchen and go to the corner uh, friterie, like the, the fry, you know, fries shop down the road and just inhale um, a big thing of poutine or patate frites and uh, or I'd bring it back to the restaurant, the raw food restaurant, and they looked at me as if I had run over a kitten with my car. Um, so I enjoyed that a lot. And uh, one of the worst coworkers I ever had was this young girl, maybe like 22, 23, who was a, um, a self-identified fruitarian who only ate fruit and nothing else, just fruit, all the day long, um, because that's what our um, caveman ancestors ate, like, you know, obviously farmed papayas and blueberries grown in a monoculture in California, and she was, honest to God, like, the, still to this day, the worst coworker I've ever had, and I've had some bad ones, um, because she constantly had extremely low blood sugar, and she was listless and like just couldn't focus on anything for more than 20 seconds and interestingly enough she was um, the longest standing employee at that restaurant Do not ask your children to read your poetry. Such requests are better saved for your suffering wife. Read your children Shel Silverstein or something. Your five-year-old will not be impressed with your paraphrase of the story of Andy Catlett losing his arm, but she will be impressed by your ability to bounce, lift, and throw her. Thank God and me for your two swole arms. As human abilities atrophy and knowledge disappears, the ability to do almost any skill becomes lucrative and impressive. Too bad you didn't think of that as a young man. Yeah, sure. Beware of false prophets who come unto you dressed in sheep's clothing, and underneath they are ravening wolves. What were you saying, Mr. Carrack? I said there are people who make a a rule of creating chaos 
so that once the chaos is underway, they can then be elected as the people who take care of the chaos. So. If you ever attempt to use LSD, think about this story I've told. Bring a new drive, maybe cost your life and use up all your gold. I'm on my way to walk old prison, got the monkey off my back. I'm on my way to walk old prison and I won't be coming back. LSD made a wreck of me, LSD made a wreck of me, LSD made a wreck of me, and I won't be coming back. So there's this decal, the symbol for the Grateful Dead. It is, it's a take on their famous kind of skull, uh, thunderbolt decal, but this has the, the part of a skull with roses around where the jaw should be, and in the in the head there's a big open space, and where there's often a thunderbolt in this one, which is called Space Your Face, there's a planet and stars and a bunch of you know, star, small stars over a black background, Space Your Face. And that decal looks exactly like 400 micrograms of LSD by a campfire in the middle of the night looking up at a crystal clear night sky watching stars rain down at you while this music plays in your ears and you're participating in the cosmos as it's unfolding right now. Now you may listen to that. And you might hate everything about it. You might hate what I just said. You might hate the idea of it. Find it obnoxious at best. Delusional or even wicked at worst. And I mean, I think it's really important to note that I don't care. I don't care at all. And, and I personally find it extremely remarkable that... I and many other people have found a sense of meaning, even a sense of place in the world, in similar experiences. I don't want or need to defend the entirety of hippie. I know that American beauty feels like home. And when I listen to it, it makes me feel like the world is a good place to be. I'm not even exaggerating. The music is like the soundtrack of my heart. For me, the culture embodied by that simple decal, Space Your Face, is a powerful tether to the world in which I live. It was a way for me to find my way back home from being lost at a time in my life when I was very lost. It brought me back into connection with things I love and things I care about and the world under my feet and the stars over my head. I owe a lot to that experience and those experiences. So I really have nothing to defend and nothing to say other than to share what my experience of this has been, what my experience of artifacts, because really these are just artifacts of the counterculture meant for me. Rural life out under the stars, 
music, psychedelics, cows, drugs, and rock and roll. There it is. Now ain't I right? Really right. Your followers sometimes have been a bearded, bathless bunch. There's even been a minister or two. A priest, a nun, a rabbi, and an educated man have listened and been taken in by you. All the country's full of two-faced politicians who encourage you with words that go like this. Burn your draft card if you like, it's good to disagree. That's a get acquainted communistic kiss. Now ain't I right? Ain't I right? Ain't I right? One politician said it. My dad wasn't a hippie. No one he knew was. My father-in-law was not a hippie, and neither were his ten brothers and sisters. His twin wasn't. My stepfather wasn't one. He was a machine gunner on a helicopter, and later a drill sergeant in the Vietnam days. My dad was a lieutenant. He went to officer's training school because he knew a poor white kid from the sticks, which is what he was, would definitely get drafted. He didn't want to go to war and grunt. Very smart, my old man. He got a silver star. My father-in-law's favorite older brother was MIA. Declared dead in the 90s, or however that works, when your brother vanishes and no one ever knew what happened to him. None of these guys were hippies. They went hang up to mods, stern men on lobster boats with winter all around. Went looking for girls at Old Orchard Beach. They knocked up their girlfriends and married them. My dad went to a one-room schoolhouse. He built hot rods. But that America, which was most of America, lost a war. Not Vietnam, they won Vietnam. They lost a bigger war against the communists. The war which happened in the States while they were away. These guys represent an old America. The yokel, the townie, provincial archetypes for ancient America. They lost the war for the new America. There were no hippies here. They did not spring up from the native population. They moved here. They arrived. Rich and ashamed. They wanted to launder the shame of their privilege by returning to the land. I went to school with their children. They had a sort of ambient exoticism, an urbane fog which clung to them from the world they had until recently inhabited. Subsistence farming is a hobby at a time when no one subsistence farmed anymore. Subsistence farming without stakes, biding time for their true inheritances to kick in once their parents in Connecticut or NYC kicked off, slumming land rich. Their money went farther here. They could buy the farm just by paying the back taxes. An asymmetrical weapon, a dirty bomb. We laughed at them. We laugh at them now, but they were ideologically committed, committed to building a narrative where they were the heroes. A fine story where everything they do is for your own good. If you don't agree, it doesn't matter. They are telling the story, and Ken Birds is narrating it. Maud's was a real farm. For as long as anyone could remember, it was a farm. For 200 years a farm, but then it sold and it was no longer a farm. It was something else that looked like a farm but wasn't. Fuzzier. Someone's idea of a farm. The kids are wild here, free range. You want to brush the daughter's hair. You think that every time you see her. What would she look like without the snarls? 
These children grew up and left as soon as they could. They show up now and then, tourists of their own childhood, a rube safari. The hippies now are even worse. The elder millennial farm punk nomad, Thai pepper greenhouse, boutique sauerkraut, kombucha bar, trivia night tasting gallery, mason jar, kimchi, edju egg entrepreneur, the thin gruel of their commitments, regenerative sustainability, the co-op, the gentrified general store, open mic, plastic buckets, yurts, solar panels on pallets, it's all a mess and you can see it from the road. They are driving a Tesla to the farmer's market. When you win a war, you get to run roughshod over the countryside. Cosmopolitan localism. Who cares what the neighbors think? Your neighbors are incidental. They need to get with the program. If you don't believe me, just listen to nothing but old country music for a month. Don't listen to anything else. It will rewire your brain for good or ill. You get to see the outlines of that old America, obscured now by recent history, a palimpsest, but still there from indelible reiteration. There's tons of anti-hippie songs. It was a genre. There was a war going on, a real one and a spiritual one, but the songs are so silly, laughing at the hippies, pointing at them. These songs sound like dispatches from the losing side of the culture war, like Confederate soldiers riding home, the pirate victory, cold comforts are comforting. The things you say when you don't know the future. Listening to those songs, you do know the future. You wish you could warn them. That guy with the Castro beard and curlers in his hair is winning. You wish you could tell them to hold the line. That little pill that everyone's taking means divorce and all mothers working. Hold the line or the informal, provincial, particular world collapses and all things become one thing and repeat forever. Your grandkids won't live near you. They will never marry or have children. And even if they did, you would never see them. The children wear masks and go to therapy. You won't recognize the heroes, but they'll never leave you alone. They are the good ones, and what they do is for your own good, and is good because they do it. Who's laughing now, asshole? Blues. Yeah, when I'm in Portland, 
to the Cathedral of the Finest Radio Hour, the production of the Swampy Radio Network. We now conclude all for that day.